A very good uh, afternoon to you and thank you so much for talking to us. I know it was rather at short notice, but a very important bill to be passed. What can you just tell us about um, the, the challenges that were faced and how those were overcome? Well, firstly, good afternoon to you and your listeners. Uh, basically, in terms of the constitution of our country, Section 79.1, the president could return a bill after being passed by both houses of parliament if he found one or other clause in it unconstitutional or if he felt there was not adequate public participation in terms of the Constitution. In this case, there was one clause, Section 32 of the bill as it now is, uh, on warrantless searches that inspectors may make uh, to check that people are abiding by the Financial Intelligence Center Act. He felt that the scope that the inspectors had the power that they had was too wide, and it should be reduced in scope. So in terms of uh, uh, what is called uh, Section 203 of the Joint Rules of Parliament, uh, when a bill is returned by the President on the grounds of constitutionality, uh, we can only look at that specific provision that he finds unconstitutional. That's what we did. Mm. Just in terms of the intentions of the bill, we understood that it was meant to fight corruption, uh, clamp down on money uh, laundering, tax corruption. We we spoke about that, but it also received bad press for those who were objecting to it so that it would include summary raids without uh, basically implying that people's rights were going to be violated. Is any of that a central part of the FICA bill? Well, in the first instance, the actual uh, bill that was brought to us by Minister Inklant-Lamene in November 2015, the warrantless searches provision was based largely around wording that the Constitutional Court itself provided. So, you know, we got legal opinion as Parliament from an independent legal expert, advocate Ismail Semenya. The National Treasury got independent legal opinion from Jeremy Gauntlet, both argued that the particular provision uh, that the president referred to us is constitutional. What they both independently suggested is that Parliament might want to address certain misunderstandings that might occur or uncertainties that might persist. So they provided wording for the subsequent amendments we made. The amendments are around the issue you speak of. We clarified that the inspectors cannot have warrantless searches. Uh, to pursue criminal action. Uh, the searches that they undertake are broadly similar, although in a different context, to the searches that labor inspectors do or food inspectors do or the CASA, the Communications Regulatory Authority has, or the South African Revenue Services has, where they are allowed, in terms of the law, in very narrow circumstances, to inspect a person's house if two conditions are met, that is, without a warrant now. One, to actually secure a warrant would take far too long a time. And two, is that they can only do so in the case of the Financial Intelligence Center amendments we've made in terms of approval by senior authorities within the Financial Intelligence Center or the Reserve Bank, as the case is. So it's not as if this uh, power is too wide. We made that clear. We've also added now in the latest process that the inspectors, when they inspect a person's home, have to abide by the Constitution and the right that people have to privacy and other constitutional rights. So we've tightened that. So in short, 
what is in this bill is not substantially different from what is in many other pieces of legislation. And uh, what we have understood, though, is that people are unhappy with other aspects of the bill, which they argue on policy grounds or even constitutional grounds, they have huge differences. And we think we understand and respect that. The committee itself spent some 40 hours deliberating on the bill between November 2015 and May 2016. We also had over 10 hours of public hearings. So what we said is fine. As for the issues that we could not process in the current process, which was voted on today in the House, all parties agreed to the outcome of the process, we said they can be included in a broader consideration of the transformation of the financial sector, including its deracialization, and the progress on the financial sector charter, which is meant to effect transformation. We said if there are issues in that public hearing that begins on the 14th of March and will continue thereafter, where there's a further need to look at the Financial Intelligence Center Act, then the committee will report to the executive and ask them to consider that. So in short, the issues that we could not entertain now in terms of Section 79 on the Constitution and Rule 203 of the Parliament can be considered later down the road. So those issues are still open. Mm. But we have, we have circumscribed in the current process by both the joint rules and the constitutional provisions in this regard. Mr. Karim, just finally, I do realize that you are in a hurry, but what is very important about this bill is uh, it has the prominent influential persons aspect of it, that concept. And that basically, I understand, means that people at the echelons of uh, governance, political power, even captains of industry uh, can be subjected to due diligence. Am I correct? Yes, but that doesn't uh, relate to the constitutionality speaking. Mm, but I'm just uh, saying aspects of the provision, But that's a separate issue which we can look at later in the public hearings I referred to in the uh, March process, March 14th. But let me answer your question. Firstly, uh, the banks are in any case, uh, in terms of international regulations, having to do much of what is covered in this bill. They're doing these issues anyway. They are, in fact, uh, uh, in their practice, uh, doing what this bill caters for. The advantage of this bill is that it provides a South African legal framework for much of the practices that the banks are actually abiding by because you must remember that the banks in South Africa, mainly the four big banks, are part of a globalized financial system. But even other banks linked to those banks. We know it's one system of banking today. And uh, you, if you're participating in the global financial system, you have no choice. You have to abide by what the international regulators require. Now, it's not as if the banks actively do very much more in respect of the banking accounts of prominent influential persons than they would any citizen. In other words, for example, let me put it to you. You see, I'm a member of parliament. I chair a portfolio committee, so my salary is publicly known. I have no business interest. If I suddenly start getting 600,000 rands a month into my account, okay, hmm. uh, through the software system, this is the way I understand it happens. I'm being crude now and simple. It'll just communicate to the public out there. So what would happen is there'll be a flashing light on some software to say, Karim is now getting 600,000 rand every month, though he has no business interest beyond his job in parliament. But another MP that has interest, say, in mining or communications and so on, legitimate business interests, people in Parliament are entitled to that, if that person gets a million into his or her account, 
the, the warning lights won't flash because that person has got business interests. So there's nothing irregular. I think people also misunderstand. You must understand, we as South Africa, ever since the mid-90s, have had a hand in the shaping of these regulations, initially through President Mandela and under the three former ministers, Ministers Godan, earlier Trevor Manuel, and Mene. We have partly shaped these international standards. In fact, the chairperson of the Financial Action Task Force, you know, the multi-national, multilateral governing body on matters related to the Financial Intelligence Center, was chaired at one stage by Professor Kader Asmal. In fact, it's the United Nations that initially came with this notion that uh, uh, people who are in uh, uh, public office can become vulnerable to corruption. The presupposition isn't that politicians themselves or ourselves are inherently or intrinsically subject or vulnerable to corruption. It's that because of the positions we have in the state, uh, uh, we can be abused, if you like, by the private sector. So it's a way also of protecting politicians from abuse. And in fact, by having this legislation, we are also giving people who have been unduly victimized by any inspector or any uh, supervisory authority the right of uh, recourse to the law. So in short, uh, this is also meant to protect politicians. It's not something that seeks to victimize politicians. And it's part of our overall effort okay. to deal with illicit financial flows. I mean, 122 billion rands have been lost over a 10-year period because people are not paying the taxes in our country when, in fact, the economic activity is here. So, in fact, this uh, bill seeks to target, if you like, monopoly capital, not the emerging black entrepreneurs, but we're acutely aware that supervisors could uh, abuse it. And so both in this bill and the bill that's coming, the conduct of financial institutions, we are going to put far more stringent rules and regulations and even legislative prescripts on avoiding the banks abusing this. So in short, that's what the public hearings on March 14th are, among many other issues. So let me stress, there is no attempt here to victimize politicians. And really, we have to do this and stand by the resolutions we've taken as government, as the ANC since 1994, on tackling illicit financial flows, money laundering, and terrorism financing.